morning to you all. I'm assuming you plan to weather the storm. Uh, let's turn to Mark chapter 12 together. I, I might be picking up a feed. I've got Kevin's got me bugged here. If it uh, blows up the mic, I'll have to turn it off. Yeah, that's right. We're going to be in... Can you hear a bug? Or can you hear the buzz? I'm sorry, I have to turn it off. I can hear a feedback through the system. I don't know if I can change that by moving it down. That better? Okay, can you hear me, Kevin? We got it fixed. There we go. Wonderful. Okay, we'll be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. A couple of years I worked in landscaping in the cities and one of the jobs that I got to take part in was uh, making retaining walls, you know, the big blocks that you lay on top of each other and you use it to hold back dirt and, and uh, one of the things that I learned in the process of what I did learn about it was that the most important layer of blocks is the first one. It takes all sorts of brains and, and, a, and a good bit of work to get that first layer set just right in, in such a way that it's not going to heave over the next winter and the, the freeze and the thaw and, and getting it lined up so it, it's going to look nice. Uh, the rest of it requires a lot more back and a lot less brains once you get the first layer set right. And this morning, as we're looking into Mark chapter 12, we're going to see an example of that first important layer, you might say, or, or something that is key to the rest. In fact, we're going to see that Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, he is that single piece that is most important for everything else that follows. But the process by which he gets there isn't so pretty. I'm going to read in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 down to the end through verse 12 of this passage. And began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. 
So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. It crushes rocks and it crushes human hearts, Lord. It convicts and it kills and it gives life. And Lord, it sets us straight in a confusing day. And so, Lord, we pray that you would set us straight through your word. We ask that your son would be the cornerstone of our lives. I say this in Jesus' name, amen. We look through this parable and this passage, see that Jesus is the heir of all things and the cornerstone of God's people. First, we'll see the owner and his vineyard and consider what that means in this parable. And then we will consider the cornerstone rejected and established. In fact, he's established through rejection. So let's look at the owner and his vineyard. So we come to chapter 12. We're picking up right after a sharp confrontation between the religious leaders and Jesus. Uh, They have demanded of Jesus, what's the authority by which you do this? And, of course, they're referring to the fact that just the previous day he'd gone in and he'd cleansed the temple. He'd knocked over tables and kicked over the seats of the pigeon traders and sellers. And uh, he had wreaked havoc in the temple. And they want to know, who do you think you are? What, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus has responded with a question to stump their question. He says, well, you tell me first. Was John's baptism from God or from man? Uh, and they can't answer that in any sort of a way to make them look good. So they punt the ball and they say, we don't know. And so Jesus doesn't answer their question either. Now, right after that, uh, these folks are still around. Jesus is going to tell a parable uh, and it's going to land on them. The disciples and the people are in front of Jesus. The religious leaders are right there. They've just been stumped. Uh, And Jesus is now going to tell a parable. As we've already seen in Mark's Gospel, as we looked at Mark chapter 4, The parables are meant both to reveal and to conceal. For some, the parables will lead people into the kingdom. For others, it will shut the door. They're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. Now, the striking thing about this parable, as we're going to see, the religious leaders, they get it. They understand the parable. And yet, there's another important way in which they don't get it. You know, they understand the point of the parable, but they don't receive it in such a way that it saves their souls. In fact, it's going to fuel their motivation to fulfill the very parable that's spoken here. We'll look at that more in a bit. The word parable comes from the Greek word parabolos. We've basically just stolen that from the Greeks. It's like the word baptism. Uh, the Greek word is baptismos. We just basically hijacked the word, brought it into English. Uh, and if you break the word parable down in Greek, it, it means to throw beside or to, to throw alongside. Uh, and in a parable, you have a meaning that kind of runs alongside the story that's told. Uh, it's a picture or a story that communicates something beyond itself. There, there is a meaning beside it. And it doesn't mean that every single detail of a parable 
has a one-to-one -one correlation with something else. It's not an allegory. That's what an allegory does. Um, but what it means is that when we read a parable, we should expect that there is a meaning that extends beyond the story itself. I think we've, we've basically come to understand that. That's the way we read parables. Uh, we are called to understand parables. We're called to receive them. We're called to be moved by them and to act in accordance with what the parable tells us. And so Jesus tells a parable at this point. Um, we want to set our hearts to understand it and to live our lives in light of what's said here. And we'll seek to do that this morning. Now this parable is the story of a man who has a vision to establish a vineyard. And he doesn't do it half-heartedly. First, he plants the vineyard. He turns a plot of dirt into a fruitful, flourishing vineyard. Now, I've never done that. Maybe you've done that before. But I have to imagine it's not an easy task. You need to do more, I'm sure, than just buy vines and stick them in the dirt and nurture them to maturity. Uh, there's a lot more to it. In fact, he does more. Uh, next, it says that he installs a fence around it. You can ask the Matthews about the need for fences around your garden with animals and such. Uh, he puts a fence around it. Next, it says as well, he, he builds a tower. Uh, the, the kind of tower that's described here is a watchtower. Uh, and so you've got, if you're going to grow vines and grapes, you have to imagine that there are other people and other animals that also like to eat grapes. So this guy is going the whole way to make sure that he doesn't lose his investment here. Uh, that's not all, though. Now, I tell you what, when it comes to the gardening season uh, in our household, things go great until it's harvest time. Uh, my marriage is in tatters by the time we get to harvest because I love growing things, and I don't really know how to can them, so I bring them in and I throw them on the counter, uh, and then you, you can pray for me in that season. You know, it doesn't go well. I need to learn more there. Uh, but he's, he knows better than that. The guy in our story here, he goes and he, he digs down a wine press. He sees that he has to not only grow something, but he has to deal with it. He has to be able to convert it into something that will keep long term. So you see the great care in this story of the owner. He's doing everything that's needed to have a productive, fruitful endeavor. And then says that he's going to go away. And so what does he do? He leaves tenants to keep it, to keep the garden while he is away. Now all he has to do is wait. And so he does wait until the harvest time. And he sends first a servant to go and to bring some of the fruit home to him. But that servant returns pretty roughed up. You could say that he returns with scrapes instead of grapes. And so... He sends another servant. And this one returns with an even worse beating. Uh, he is not only roughed up, but he is shamefully treated. He's hit over the head. Uh, this is probably meant to be a greater warning. So the man sends a third servant. Sends yet another one. But that servant never comes home. It says here that the owner keeps sending more servants to his tenants and some are beaten and some are killed he must be thinking in his mind what is possibly going on here the owner deliberates over what he should do next 
He decides that the final course of action is to send his son whom he cherishes, to send his beloved son. He must be thinking to himself, perhaps, in fact it says it here, perhaps you know, they would dare to, to beat and to kill my servants, but certainly they're going to listen to my son. Certainly they would respect him. They would never dare to lift a finger against his precious son. They'd have to finally humble themselves and listen. That seems to be the thought process here. But he figures wrongly. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I believe that Jesus means for our blood to boil when we read something like this. I think we're supposed to be incensed by the injustice that takes place here. The man does all of this work and he employs these men for this vineyard. And not only do they not give him what he's due, they murder his son. Jesus then raises a question that I think everybody would have known the answer to. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What's fitting for those tenants? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That is the closest thing to justice that can be carried out. It's, fitting, it's a fitting end to tenants who are so wicked and vile. Now, as we consider the meaning of this parable, as we think about what's thrown alongside it, uh, the first thing that we want to understand is the owner and his vineyard. I believe the owner describes God. Uh, the, this is perhaps, you could say, even specifically God the Father. The son, of course, then would be Christ, as we're going to see. And if that is the case, then the vineyard is probably something roughly equivalent to God's people in the Old Testament. So I, I think we can say that the vineyard is Israel and what God is doing there. Uh, and the servants would be the prophets of old. And before we consider in more detail the servant and the son, uh, I want to let the reality sink in for us of the owner and his vineyard. Uh, when God planned to work in Israel, what he did there, he expected fruit from his people. What God did under the old covenant wasn't some sort of lab experiment that he was just kind of curious to know what's going to happen. As you look at the law and the unfolding revelation of the Old Testament, you can see that God gave an incredible amount of of detail and careful intention. You, you look at the laws of the Old Testament, the history of God's people, what he does. He did so much for them. He painted pictures through the sacrificial systems. He foreshadowed the coming of his son through law and festivals and promises. He chose Israel out from among the nations to be his peculiar people. And he gave them his covenant and his laws and his promises. It says even that he adopted them. Israel was the object of so much of his grace and kindness and mercy. I mean, think about the miracles that he did to deliver them from Egypt. Or how about for 40 years he sustained them in the wilderness? Think about the way he freed them from their oppressors in the book of Judges over and over again. God did so much for his people Israel. And what was the fruit of his labors? So often the people turned to worship Baal. So often when God blessed his people, even we see this prosperity that he gives them led them uh, to turn their backs on him. But his desire was for fruit from his people. And I want to encourage us, brothers and sisters, that desire 
hasn't changed today. Does God want his people to be any less fruitful today? Is it possible that God would go to all that work and desire fruit from his people in that day, but today he doesn't really care anymore? I don't think that's possible. His desire is that we would be fruitful. And the greatest act of fruitfulness for us is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He would have us to be worshipers of Him alone. That is what He's looking for. He's looking for the pure-hearted worshiper. Are you seeking a pure devotion to God today? Or are you drawn after the God of our age? Think about it. We have all sorts of, in our society, all sorts of gods that we pursue. We can make pleasure or possessions or honor or power or comfort or security. We can make that number one. All the people around us crave that. And if you have to have that more than you need God, then that's going to hinder our fruitfulness. God has desired fruit from his people. The owner has not gone to all of that work for nothing. It's a bit for the owner and his vineyard. I want to consider now the cornerstone that is established through rejection. As I mentioned, it seems clear that the, the servants who are beaten here and killed, uh, these are the prophets of old. When God's people go astray, in the book of Kings, for instance, uh, you see God sending prophets to them again and again. I have to imagine that some of the hardest jobs that human beings have ever had were some of the jobs that God gave to his prophets. I mean, those poor guys had to stick their necks out for God to a rebellious people. You know the story of Elijah. He's a godly and faithful man. He speaks the truth and he cuts it straight. And Jezebel wants him dead. And King Ahab isn't too much better to him. Think of a contemporary of Elijah, another prophet. We know the story of Micaiah, the prophet. He prophesies the vision that God gives him upon the king's request. The king demands to know what God has given him as a vision. And so he speaks the truth. And he's imprisoned by Ahab for that. The false prophet, Zechariah, comes and strikes Micaiah for speaking the truth. Think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah runs afoul of the people of Israel and the kings and the false prophets. It's whole, his whole ministry is full of that. One last prophet I'll mention. We know about the, the prophet who's also the son of the, the high priest. Uh, Zechariah, we read about him in 2 Chronicles 24. Striking, Zechariah's father saves the king Joash from death. Remember, Athaliah wipes out all of the, the kingly line, and one of the servants saves Joash, sets him aside, protects him so he isn't killed. And where is he kept? He's kept in the temple. And Jehoiada, the priest, keeps Joash and raises him up. And Joash becomes king, and he rules in Israel, and he forgets the Lord. It's so heinous that Jehoiada's son Zechariah, who is both prophet and priest, comes and he rebukes the people, and he rebukes the king, and calls them to repentance. And so Joash stirs up a conspiracy to have him killed. He kills the son of the man who saved his life. That is the hard kind of job 
that the prophets of the Old Testament had. They came to call the people to repentance. And what kind of fruit did the owner get? He often lost his servants, those who he sent out. That's just four prophets in the Old Testament. That's just a few of the servants that God sent. God sent many others to his people to bring them to repentance. And on rare occasions, the people did repent. Most of the times, the people just plunged further into idolatry and into sin. And in the fullness of God's time, he sent his son. I just have to imagine, you know, perhaps the people will listen now. If God would send his own son, perhaps people would listen. What if God himself were to step into our world? Would people listen then? Jesus is both heir of Israel and of the whole world, and, and he came. Uh, how could people find fault with God's son? And yet we read those tragic words in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. God the Son would unite himself to humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He would, God would step into our world. And he came to the Jewish people in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the Son, the heir of all things. And he came to be the Messiah of his people. And yet, he was rejected. He was slain. He was thrown out. He would be casted aside just like the prophets of old were cast aside. And just as horrifying as the tenants murdering the vineyard's owner's son would be the, the murder of God's son. I believe that the murder of Jesus was the most heinous sin ever committed on this sin-soaked planet. But you know, this was no unforeseen outcome to God. It did not take God by surprise. As we look at this parable, as we think about it, I wonder if some of you had the thought, what's the matter with this father? Think about it. I mean, he has sent servants out and they've been beaten. He sent servants out and they've died. Why would this father ever even think about sending his son? Why would he send his precious son when he knows how bad they are? But you know, that is a good question. And we could ask it of our Heavenly Father. Why would God send his Son to wicked men and women, the people of our human race? Why would God send his Son for the likes of us? As I look at my own sin, the sins of my fellow man, as I look at the sins that people are capable of, I would want to say I have no idea why God would do that. But the Bible tells us the answer. John 3.16, we were here last week, I'll say it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Out of love, God sends his son. This was all part of God's plan to save us. Now the focus of this parable is to condemn the religious leaders. They're about to murder God's son. This is a parable of condemnation for them. Uh, and in fact, the rest of this chapter is going to be 
the religious leaders challenging Jesus, uh, the Herodians and the Pharisees who represent the political and theological leaders, they're going to try to entrap Jesus about paying taxes. The Sadducees, who are the priestly class, they're going to challenge him on the resurrection. Experts in the law are going to ask him about his understanding of the law. And we see that after Jesus tells this parable, the leaders understand that he spoke this parable about them. They get that. But in understanding it, they are fueled to fulfill it. Having understood that Jesus has rebuked them, all the more they want to kill him. All the more they want to lay their hands on the Son. They have not responded in the way they should have. But again, even in all of that, this is further evidence of God's plan and what he's doing here with his son. Verses 10 through 11. Have you not read this? After he tells this parable, he says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The air that is thrown out is also the cornerstone that the builders rejected. The stone that in the eyes of the builders was good for nothing has become the anchoring stone on which everything else is built off of. This whole event, as hard as it is to get our minds around, was God's plan. It says here that this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, it's not simply that God came up with a great plan after his son was killed. As if people did wicked things, and then God was really marvelous at picking up the pieces. That's not what that psalm is talking about. All of this was the Lord's doing. Both the stone being rejected, and then after that, the stone being established as the cornerstone. I mean, think about it this way. We've read Isaiah 53 recently in our fellowship. Isaiah 53 was not an afterthought. It was a prophecy. This is all within God's plan to save sinners. On Wednesday nights, we've seen Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, as Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and he's preaching to the very people who have put Jesus to death. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is really hard for us to get our minds around, but the crucifixion was God's plan. It was ultimately God's plan for Jesus to die as the Savior of the world. His death is the means by which he is the Savior. Now, that does not mean that God forced Judas to betray Jesus. It isn't as if God created hatred in the hearts of the religious leaders for Jesus. They all did that of their own accord. God is not the author of sin, but he is the author of this story and the sending of his son. Somehow, I don't understand this, but he even uses the rebels and their hatred for him, he uses that to save sinners. All those people did exactly what they wanted. God doesn't cause them to sin. They do that for themselves, but he uses their sin for our salvation, as Peter says back in Acts 2. 
And that plan was for Christ to be rejected by the builders and for God then to establish him as the cornerstone. Through Jesus Christ, the Jews have received their Messiah. And through Christ, we Gentiles who were far away have been brought near. And because of that, everything is built off of Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. So the question for us is, is he our cornerstone? Is your life built off of Jesus? Is his identity and his life and his ministry and the promises he's given, is that what your life is about? Is your entire life built off of Christ? And being the cornerstone, that's what he is supposed to be for us. I tell you what, though, it would be a weird building if it were a cornerstone and one other block. That's not a building, right? Just as he's supposed to be our cornerstone individually, he is our cornerstone corporately. We are meant to be built off of him together. You see, all sorts of teachings in places like Ephesians 4 that we are a building growing up together. We are built off of Christ. Uh, our lives are to be built up and out from him and together. We grow to, to maturity and into a building together. So, as we would ask ourselves, is he our cornerstone in our lives individually? I think it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves as a church together, is he our cornerstone as a church? Is he the center of what we do here? Is he what we are all about? That's what he's come to be. He has been rejected so that we could be saved. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. And that is true for us individually. Every single person who will be saved will be saved in their relationship to Christ. It will not be on account of somebody else's relationship to Christ. We will be saved individually, but we will be brought together corporately. And Christ is to be our cornerstone in both of those senses. We are all tied together in him. So Jesus is our cornerstone. As we work through the rest of this chapter, we're going to see those who will reject him, coming to press him, coming to try to make him stumble. And we will see him walk right through that with no problem. We should marvel at the amazing work of God to save us from our sin. His work truly is marvelous, and we should marvel over it. I'll invite the men to prepare for communion, and Elizabeth to come to play, and we'll go to